Hello and welcome to Artimitate's Life. I'm John Reynolds and this is the podcast that looks at the relationship between our world and the creative arts through the eyes of creatives. I hope everyone's really well at the moment. Obviously it's been so hard over the past few months. I think these have been so much harder than the first lockdown. Because in the first lockdown it felt like everyone was in it together. You know, this is the first time that everyone all over the world had been in something like this. But now it's just dragging and dragging and dragging and it's really highlighted the inequality economically and socially and politically that we have like not, not not just in the UK but all over the world I hope you're finding happiness in your hobbies your passions and I hope that you're if you are an artist you've been able to create and if you've not been able to create then that's okay you need to feel inspired to create something really great and I'm sure that inspiration will come from somewhere soon today's episode is a really really great chat I had with David William Parry who is definitely a renaissance man. He's an award-winning theatrical poet, esteemed celebrant, and Central Asia enthusiast. He's also an LGBTQ activist, TEDx speaker, playwright, producer, essayist, broadcaster, actor, director, founding member of the Theo-Humanist Arts, and a frantically busy social gospel pastor to South London's disadvantaged. I had a really lovely chat with David, ooh, at the end of last year, and we spoke about so much it's it's so hard to kind of like categorize this chat into one thing we just had an absolutely we just covered so many topics you know just about how how we promote the arts in his community through his role as a pastor and how like the last year has affected the arts and yeah I'm definitely down for having him on again um he was a lovely guy and has so much to talk about just a really lovely warm hilarious personality as well so I hope that you enjoy today's episode. What a palaver! What a palaver! <laughs> you both doing okay? I think, oh God, what a good question. <laughs> I didn't want to use my mobile because the, the reception is so awful. And we've been fighting with a power failure for 10 minutes. Oh, Nothing you God. can do about it, is there? Oh. Yeah, Christmas joy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, anyway, good morning, good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. <laughs> Great to meet you finally. Nice to meet you finally too, my friend. So I think it's fair to describe you as a polymath. You're an award-winning theatrical poet, LGBTQ activist, TEDx speaker, playwright, producer, essayist, broadcaster, actor, director, founding member of the Theo-Humanist Arts, and oh, a frantically busy social gospel pastor to South London's disadvantaged. How do you manage to balance all of these different different jobs and different creative hobbies oh to be honest i i'm a short fat pastor doing lots of interesting things so, <laughs> um i don't have time for hobbies i mean they're all done on a professional basis um and i i really advise that to everybody give up your hobbies and make life shake make it make it tremble because it's 10 times more fun than not doing it so um, yeah i mean it's just a short fat busy busy bugger there we are <laughs> <laughs> They do say, don't they, like, amateurs love what they do. Oh, no, amateurs do what they love, and then professionals love what they do. Is that what you... Would you agree with that? Um. Oh, right. Having said what I just said, I'm sort of fuzzy on the professional stroke amateur thing, because some amateurs are so much more skilled than the professionals. I mean, you know, if I'm wearing my theatrical hat, um, I have seen productions in repertory theatre and actors in repertory theatre 
that would shame most of Hollywood. Um, and, you know, you say to them afterwards, oh, my God, that was fantastic. You know, what are you doing <laughs> with it? And then they say, well, no, it's just something I enjoy doing. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, having said that I'm fuzzy, I think the difference between professional and amateur nowadays is funding. It's as simple as that. If I turn up, <clears throat> excuse me, with a local project for the church, you know, I, I want to, I'm writing an old trans extension of the Christmas story at the moment. Um, and I was fiddling around with that last year, year before last year. Oh my God, this fuzzy for you. I think it was last year. And um, I noticed the minute I mentioned it to somebody, all of a sudden Attitude magazine was getting hold of me, a reverend, what do, you, what, do, what do you intend to do with this? And I said, you look, it hasn't even been written yet. You know, so, <laughs> so I don't know, but it came down to money. It came down to money. If I'd have done it just through the local churches, Right. And, you know, church gets too much of a bashing. All of the churches in Clapham were really behind me. You know, I'm, I'm MCC, Metropolitan Community Church Oasis. So, you know, our colours are tied to the mast. But, you know, was there so much you know, resistance and horror? No, they were all behind it. But the point is there, there's traffic cash as much as we are. So it's funding. It's funding, he said censoriously. There we are. <laughs> I'm really interested in your view on this because... I see like art as a calling and like any creative person, it has to be a calling as a pastor yourself. Do you think that there's a similarity between having like a religious calling, like knowing that you're destined to go into teaching and preaching and then also going into creating and making great art? Gosh, um, I'm going to get biblical on you for a minute. I, I do that sometimes. Hey, it's my job. What can I say? Um, St. Paul wrote in Corinthians that there are innumerable spiritual gifts. Some preach, some teach, some heal, etc., etc., etc. Every time I read that, I thought, right, that's curious, because it means he's surrounded by creative people. You know, everybody's there doing something interesting. Um, I, I do think there's more than one calling. I think pastoring is where you're the servant of other people more than the leader of other people. I think I won't mention denominational names, but I'm sure the Church of England will know who I mean. You know, I, they, you don't lead, you lead from the front, you lead as the servant, you don't lead, you know, in the sense of I'm above you in the hierarchy. You know, hierarchies are internal, they're not meant to be, you know, me turning up in my, my spectacular coat and telling everybody else what to do, that's not the idea at all. Um, so I think other vocations must be empowered you know, sculptors, painters, writers, poets. I mean, certainly it links in with my time and my work in Central Asia. <clears throat> you know, I've been working uh, with that for a number of years with that incredible region. I have been to the very city where Aladdin got into his first fist fight with somebody. Wow. You know, and I've, I've walked along the streets that Genghis Khan would have had pulled down and then rebuilt in his own image because he was vain. <laughs> You know, I mean, you know, it's, a, it's a, an area of minarets and magic carpets, and they're bursting with talented people. So, no, I, <clears throat> I think personally that the spirit, you know, the universe, the essence of creation, it gives us all these wonderful gifts. The trouble is nowadays finding, you know, which one is yours, um, because I think everyone always has a primary one. I think people can do more than one thing. That's a bit of a modern myth in, in the pejorative sense you know you are meant to do one thing turn up at your factory and do as you're told no 
you know, I, I think we 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 all we're all multitaskers, but at the same time, I suspect rather like me, there's one primary gift there's one primary calling from which all the others stem otherwise you know you, you very quickly run into time troubles which which you which you pointed out um <laughs> and also it really disempowers the other choices it disempowers the other areas so you know in, in theater if i'm thinking right i'm taking off my central asian cap i'm putting on british theatrical cap now um i've always tended to veer to metaphysical dramas, some of which would be unrecognisable as metaphysical dramas. I mean, we put on years back a play by Elchin Efendiev called Citizens of Howl, and it was actually about Azerbaijan um, in 1939 as the Second World War was just about to break out in Europe. And Uncle Joe over, over there, not a nice man, not a nice man, you know, had, had basically declared class war yet again on somebody he didn't like so everything was tense and taut and i thought oh well that that's the spiritual struggle that's the sort of that's the sort of production i i would love to be involved in so i started as director i ended up producer we had a, a rave run um at the theatro technus over which is a lo lovely off west end theater and took it from there so no more power to everybody Everyone has a gift. Everyone's got a book in them or a painting in them or a sculptor, you know, a piece of sculpture in them. Absolutely everyone. Find your gift and glorify the universe and let's all make life a better thing together. That's really inspiring and inspirational. And I think art brings out the best in people. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say to people who come to you and say, like, oh, I'm not creative or I'm not, I don't have a talent or like an arty hobby, like, because I, I do believe that everyone has the potential to create something great. How do you think we can get that out? And do you have any advice that you give to people yourself? Well, if I'm not wearing my collar, I normally say, well, you've got a gift for irritating me. Um, also, in, <laughs> in British, in British theatre, I'm known as Dr. No. I hope that's done with love. Uh, no, oh. no, no, no. I'm very good at saying no to people. Um, so I'm glad you. I'm glad you said yes to this, though. But, oh, so am I. I've been looking forward <laughs> to this one. Um, no, no, this is a lovely show, and you're doing a great job. And I did a tiny oh, bit you. of research, and you're a great guy, and I love what you're doing. And if I can help in any way, you've got to let me know because this is the sort of, you know, this is the sh this type of show we all need more of nowadays. Thank you so much. Well, I'll be spreading it left, right, and centre. And you know, we've got to meet uh, in the new year and put our heads together and think what we can do because art needs to be promoted and defended at this particular time. Um, no, right, the first thing I say to answer your question to anyone like that is, are you sure? Are you sure you haven't got an inkling of a gift or are you really just very, very, very busy? You know, I mean, I can think, uh, I, years back we were involved we, with Anchor, which was a, a disabilities group um, I think it was run by the, the Catholic Church on Brixton Hill. I can't remember it uh, offhand. Do forgive me, everybody down there. I just can't remember it offhand. It was many, many years ago. And, um, you know, they were all sat there doing their times tables. You know, is that the most appropriate thing? So uh, I turned up and said, no, let's do some drawing. And within a couple of months, they were suddenly, you know, drawing figures and colouring them in. And we were studying magical things like road signs don't cross the road if it says no look that bit's red not green what does that mean 
So, you know, and that's art. It's art, it's education, and it's useful. Only only the... I don't know how political I'm allowed to get. I'll have to be careful on your... You can be as political as you want. Oh, God, this this government of losers, you know... Yeah, by the way, you know, we're not all the underclass and we've all got gifts and we're all made in the divine image. You know, pay some respect to people, for heaven's sake. You know, if I think of the funding that's being withdrawn um, in Clapham, Clapham's prosperous. Clapham is prosperous. There are businesses closing down left, right and centre here already. That is, <clears throat> excuse me, my God, if it's happening here, what's the rest of the country going to be? next year one of my favorite bars the two brewers uh, some of the best acts i've ever seen there local gay bar um what they used to do on a friday night was the west end shows would stop you know they'd finish in the west end and they'd all rush down there and you'd have the you know the brightest lights in the west end performing on stage and all you did was pay a pay what was it in those days a fiver to get in with a pint in your hand and you were seeing what you pay a hundred pounds for you know if you'd have gone through the normal route um you know and at the moment they're they're, they're worried about closing you know uh, if i think of some of the drag acts if i think of some of the trans acts i've seen um pan am actually started i think in the two brewers you're a young you're you're a, you're a a firm buttocks young warrior so you won't remember all of this stuff there was an act called Maisie Trelect. Um, I mean, the, the material was blue by any by any by any description, but it was hilariously funny. I mean, she would have seen herself as old time music hall, um, and yeah, you know, the sort of liveliness, the rowdiness, the the energy, the sparks that were being exchanged in that room were absolutely astonishing. And it's now under threat. My God! So with people who say, you know, oh, oh Reverend, I pastor I, I don't think i've got a gift i don't think i can do anything i normally say go home and have a good strong gin and tonic and give it some thought <laughs> give it some real thought what would you like to do because i bet you can find something in your heart somewhere does that answer you my young friend <laughs> yeah absolutely i think yeah it is about being relaxed and creating time to do these things because if you're busy all the time you're not gonna feel you're not going to have the same like creative ideas and creative energy. Yeah. And I completely agree with what you said about the government. I think it's an absolute disgrace that they described artists and creative people as unskilled and suggest that they yeah. should re- retrain. Yeah. 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 Do you have any more, do you have any more thoughts about that and how, because <clears throat> if anything, it made me want to go and pursue acting more and carry on with the podcast and just be even more creative to show them. Cause I think throughout history that like, the arts has been there to, reflect the world that we live in and to also challenge governments and challenge terrible ideas and that that also brings back to a lot of the work that you do which i love as well i think that's what they don't like they don't like the challenge you know i i'm a libertarian i think if you're 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 gay i think if you're do I use the H word? I think if you're homosexual, yeah, I think if you're <laughs> if you if you're that, you know, you, you have to be a free-minded, free thinker because you're forced into it whether you like it or not. But you know, what's wrong with freedom or what's wrong with liberty? Um, the trouble is the present administration, they're not even recognizable Tories. You know, my my worry is that libertarianism with a capital L as well as, as well as a lowercase L probably belongs to the future, you know. Because you can't just drop people in the middle of a, a, a field and say, right, you're free, get on with it. You know, so, so it probably belongs to the future. Um, 
I don't know what's happening to the Labour Party, although I've, at my age I've seen all this before. Um, <laughs> it seems to go through these self-destructive cycles. Did you see the meme about uh, Keir Starmer as the dinosaur? It was the funniest thing I've seen in years. Oh, no, what did it say? Well, there was him as a Tyrannosaurus Rex at the top. And, you know, this is how he talks to the left. And you saw this ferocious thing walking down the street. And there was him as the cuddly pink dinosaur at the bottom <laughs> saying, this is how he talks to the Tories. And I thought, oh, my God, a bullseye, a bullseye. <laughs> you know, it's completely Mac true, though. Oh, my friend, horrifyingly true, horrifyingly true. Well, you know, we need a proper opposition. We need a functional opposition that calls these these challenging people into account but it's not even Toryism as I recognize it you know if you're looking back at the old days of of Ted Heath um he, uh, right a, a working class guy made good who suddenly thinks he's a Tory he used to come down to Portsmouth I went to school in Portsmouth and he'd conduct local choirs and ruin Christmas carols by adding his own <laughs> his own bits you know, but that's Toryism you know I'm the toff but I'm joining in. Even Theresa May, that's recognisable. What's going on at the moment isn't recognisable because it's almost like a corporate takeover bit of the high streets. You know, I'm in your pocket, you're in mine. Let's line each other's pockets and make as much money as we can before everybody realises what we're doing. I mean, this is absolutely reprehensible. Right, I, I, that's lost me my knighthood. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, oh, gosh. I'm tr I think I'll hold back from politics after that. What what offends me personally, what worries me most, is their attitude to the arts. Um, no one can say the West End isn't a cash cow for tourism. Um, I went to uh, the theatre years back. I'll try and remember which one it was with a Japanese professor of English. I won't say her name because she's the sort that will listen to this. <laughs> and, you know, and she was dressed to the nines and I was in my sort of falling apart tweed jacket oh. thinking, oh, my God, I've got to go shopping. You know, and we were we were watching Hamlet and she had paid a fortune for these tickets. It was an awful show, an awful version. But, uh, you know, and there was they were telegraphing the lines. There's one bit where uh, Hamlet's in the graveyard. Everybody knows it, you know, holding up the skull. And that's poor Yorick. I knew him by the ratio, yada, yada, yada. And you could hear what the lines, the lines were coming. And, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have been sent to England. And somebody says, and there's a pause on the stage. And I, I felt my head sink into my hands because it's one of those sorts of lines. And he turns to Hamlet and says, don't worry, sir. They're all mad over there. And I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't look at her. My head was in my hands. She was trying to steer me out. What on earth is going on? But on, in the terms of money, you know, it was a fortune that was made every year. And, you know, right, the Getty Museum, the Tates, you know, these are national treasures. They're also economic assets. So the the absolute disrespect paid to young, young up-and-comers like yourself, I find personally offensive. That really gets to me. Um, and also to, to some people I've known in the trade, in the profession for years, who are doing these breathtakingly beautiful things or sometimes politically aware things. I mean, friends of mine are in jag art. Or, all right, how about this? My dear friend, one of my dear friends is Viktor Sobchak, probably the greatest Russian impresario in the country, who's just about to launch his version of Exit the King. That's Ionesco crazy, crazyism, absurdism, of course. And he can't get a penny at the minute. 
But hang on, that is going to make lo the local economy burst into life just before Crimbo, and the local politicians can't see it. What is wrong with you? So, yeah, we're not always talking about national economies, all, although theatre and the arts holds its own on a national level. All people have to do is look at the, the stats the government themselves are producing, itself is producing, and then look at local, local economies. If a good play opens, the shops, the bars, the restaurants all do more trade. You know, what is wrong with you? So, no, go and retrain and work at McDonald's. I wish that rich young man that had said that would go and do it himself. You know, too many rich people and too many lawyers in Parliament scoring points and trying to look good in front of the cameras. This is no way to hold a democracy. Oh, oh God, there we are. Now I have lost my knighthood. But I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> you don't need the knighthood, do you? Yeah, but it just exactly. it just reminds me that like when you spoke about tourism and the idea of the West End as a cash cow, this always comes up when I argue against the monarchy. And I always say... They always say the reasons why I think it's bad. And then people say, oh, but it's good for tourism. But I'm sure the West End brings in so much more people. And it it's just, I think, it, well, I think it is infinitely more valuable than, than the monarchy or anything like that as well. Look, you know, I agree with you. Um, I, <laughs> I'm not the world's great monarchist. Um, in the past, I used to be a lot more vociferous and a lot more, you know, I wanted to go and storm Buckingham Palace myself, um, you know, <laughs> take down a few paintings. I'm not sure that's wise at my age, but in the past. <clears throat> and now, yeah, I, <clears throat> I don't mind a depoliticized head of state. I mean, that's what we're being told is the idea behind the monarchy now. So I think that's a really good idea because it came out uh, in America, of course, a number of years ago that they were thinking, you know, one side was thinking of assassinating the other side's leading, you know, candidate. This is nonsensical. This is madness. So we don't want to go down that route. And I don't think that type of so-called democracy works in Europe anyway. Um, why, not, why can't she be like the Queen of Holland? I mean, she cycles, you know, gets her bicycle <laughs> to work at the bank. Why can't she be like that? Either way... Um, what we've got to do, if we want to keep a monarchy, I personally don't, because I think we need to come into the 21st century. You know, if we do want to do that and as a depolized head of state, you know, the idea is the monarch embodies the constitution. The trouble is, of course, is we don't have a constitution. Um, but, you know, there's an embodiment of the constitution. This is what makes this country worth living in. I'm representing it, but I have no political power whatsoever. That's a great idea. So, you know, no matter what party you're in, you'll never be at the very top. Forget it. But the, the, the person at the very top has no money and no power. I think that's a great idea. Oh, get rid of the whole thing. That's even better. <laughs> there we are. I only brought that up because I just think at the moment our country is so divided and we don't really have a figure who brings everyone together. Obviously, we had Captain Tom Moore over the summer raising money for the NHS, but we haven't really got someone in a position of power or at least as a symbol of power who's who is bringing everyone together on all sides and yeah. do you think do you think like the disunity that we've seen in the country like for the past five years or so since the brexit vote has do you think that's impacted the arts at all in a good or a bad way oh it's decimated the arts economically it's been quite good for inspiration it's been quite good for inspiration um, I might be a libertarian, but actually I was completely against Brexit. Um, you know, if you're going to have a row with someone, you've got to be at the same table. 
you know, you don't walk out the room and continue the row. That makes no sense at all. And uh, I, yeah, I, I think like lots of other people, I was worried by what was coming out of Brussels and I didn't really want um, a, a European super state, right? Okay, so who will be in charge and how do we elect these people and how are they accountable? There, are, there were far too many rich kids in Brussels telling us what they wanted and enforcing it in the Council of Ministers. That had to stop. Um, but you know, you don't stop it by running away like a spoiled brat and saying I'm not talking to you and I'm putting my fingers in my ears. You know that that makes no sense at all. So unlike most of the uh, most of my other brothers and sisters in libertarianism, I thought that was a terrible idea. Um, oh gosh, you've said lots of different things. No, I think this this current government is is deliberately divisive. <clears throat> Excuse me, I don't think they're looking for national unity. Um, even problematic figures like Churchill, and he was a very problematic figure, there's no point pretending otherwise. What he did in Ireland, God, what he did against the working classes in England, if we think about it, let alone the misdemeanors in India, you know, I mean, it goes on and on and on. You know, the trouble is when Britain was under attack by real fascists who would have taken everything apart and rebuilt it in this terribly inhuman structural way, inhumanly structured way, you know, he was there as a figurehead. Um, Bojo, not a man I'm, I'm fond of, says he wants to be like Churchill. We, I mean, you're not being, are you, love? Let's face it. <laughs> you know, I mean, no, nobody's running around you. <clears throat> but I actually, you know, the, the more cynical part of me, which I promise I try and keep under control all the time, um, thinks, well, that's actually not what they're doing. They're trying to reinforce something that even Thatcher, another problematic person, didn't want to do. I mean, I, she used to stunned me on a number of levels um you know so you've got a, a the first british female prime minister i mean you know the yanks are way behind us right so we've had one we've had we've had a jew benjamin disraeli you know they're way behind us um so she she comes under number 10 and the first thing she does is quote some francis you know so my blood went cold why do you feel you've got the authority to do that and what are we all in for if you are quoting a saint the minute you get power, that is really worrying. And, uh, you know, and I wasn't let down. None of us are let down, were we? I mean, it was basically tribal warfare the whole time she was in office. <laughs> um, but even she, I mean, she wanted to roll back the state in a negative way. I think there's a positive way of doing it and a negative way of doing it. So she wanted to sort of get back to the 1930s, I think. You know, where everybody's got their their little, well, I'll tell you something else. You know, do you have, have you ever heard of the hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful? Yes, yes. I refuse to sing it. I never sing it. You know, the rich man at his castle, the poor man at his gate, you can kiss my proverbial love. <laughs> yeah, whoever wrote that needs a good slap around the chin, not, not, not sung in a church. So anyway, so she, she, you know, this nonsense called the Thatcher legacy, because I've been thinking about that a lot recently. In other words, I want to roll back the state in this sort of callous capitalist way, but no further than this. That's the line I don't want anyone to cross. Otherwise, we start facing the types of problems they only really have in challenged economies in what we used to call the third world. Because, of course, there's no, there's no balancing hand. There's no legislature in place to make sure everybody's playing a fair game. Um, but this government, I don't know. And it was something else I thought of years back. What was it, Sir Keith Joseph? They had a Tory think tank looking at economic systems in Latin America. And I was thinking, because I've got loads of friends over in Latin America, 
you know, why are they doing that? Why aren't they looking at Switzerland? Or why aren't they looking at Scandinavia? You know, obviously society's ahead of ours. Why are they looking at, at you know, countries, and God bless them and love you to bits, you know, with severe economic problems and uh, real problems in distribution of wealth? Why are they studying that? And of course, now it's becoming clearer. What Bojo wants to do isn't simply take us back to the 1930s, but rather the 1830s. You know, well, yes, my lord, no, my lord. Oh, thank you for your half, you know, for your farthing at Christmas time. Don't, don't, you know, thank you on your way back to your castle, governor. <laughs> Absolutely no. So, you know, I, I'm not sure they're trying to be, you know, the, the BBC, defund the BBC. Um, because it's now an agent of propaganda. I'll tell you something else, which is why your podcast has to keep going um, and get stronger. When I was a, a boy, you knew everything the BBC said was true. And it was one of the biggest pains in the ass for every government imaginable. Now, you know, it's a mouthpiece for the establishment. And, you know, it only, you know, it likes this bit. It doesn't like that bit. So it attacks certain policies. It goes quiet over other policies. Absolutely disgraceful. We need free and independent voices like yours in this show. Uh, right, I'll get to it, I promise. So I, I do think they're trying to be unifiers. I think they're, they're very clearly trying to divide the nation in a way it's been divided. It hasn't been divided for, for a very long time because they see that as stability. Um, and dare I say, all right, this is where your listeners try and find out my address and come and beat me up, I think. Um, <laughs> What they're trying to do is disguise, of course, the effects of Brexit um, and the fact the Chinese will soon own our high streets. Um, I'm not against the Chinese. I am against their civil rights and human rights record. That is frightening beyond belief. And, you know, the more the merrier. I mean, you know, will World War Three be averted because the party have holiday homes outside London? Let's hope so. Um, but, you know, they're, because they're all major stockholders and shareholders nowadays, so they're buying up the high street. The more small businesses that close, the more the corporates will take over, and they have a sizable number of Chinese shareholders nowadays. So, you know, what perfect way to hide the effects of Brexit behind this strange disease. I'm not saying nothing's going on. I do, as a pastor, you get to see some terrible things. Uh, heartbreaking things. So I'm not saying nothing's going on, but I am saying that it's been politically manipulated for a number of reasons. Um, and one of them, I think, is to hide the side effects, which will hit in January, of the Bre you know, a no Brexit deal will be a financial disaster for this country. Um, and what they're doing is they're going to turn around and say, look, what could we do? It, it, it was a pandemic. What could oh my God, who'd have seen that coming? We had to shut all this down because of the pandemic, oops, there we are. Let's get back to normal. And you know, that's why now we're facing a third lockdown. Are they? They must be running out of metaphors. I mean, you know, so we're now past the circuit break. We're now, you know, so what's next? I think people have to start looking at the government's own statistics, which is telling a very, very different story to what is said in Parliament, and an out of control media simply obsessed with ratings. Um, you know, there's something decent and there's something very good hearted in this country, which is under direct attack at the moment. And it tends to be the internationalism. You can't be pure in a country like Britain. We're all bloody migrants here. You know, you can't you can't do those things. Maybe southern Germany, maybe. But, you know, you can't <laughs> you can't do it here. So the good heartedness is under attack. The, the neighborliness is under attack. And we've got to start standing firm and saying, look, 
we're better than this as individuals. We're creative people. We're, we're, you know, we're decent people. And yes, we believe in a better life for everyone. And what's wrong with that? Like, oh God, am I, am I monopolizing your show? I you see, this is what a, this is what a power cut does to, to Reverend David. It <laughs> starts exploding. <laughs> I just love hearing you talk about all these things and it just reminded me the bit that you spoke about at the end, like about politicians these days wanting to make their countries pure in inverted commas. Yeah. Yeah. And as a pastor yourself, you obviously believe in the sanctity of life. Do you think that voice and that viewpoint is missing from the political debate? Because I think that's the most important religious teaching, like personally. No, I mean, the, the, the... Oh, God, you'll get me on my religious views. I've got to be careful of that. Um, because we've been here all night, that's why. Um, you know, I, I suspect the greatest teaching of Christianity is unconditional love. You know, there is something somewhere, somehow, that unconditionally loves every single bit of creation. That's a, a, a revolution of an idea. No matter what you do, no matter how far you go, no matter how, you know, to what extent you let yourself down, you are loved. And you will be forgiven. What a what a blown mind you must have. And I have there, I admit it. If you think about stuff like that, love and wisdom, you know, rhyme and reason, rule again. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thought. And so let's look at the the, the figures, religious and historical, that personified those teachings. You have a migrant mother, you know, a migrant family, they're forced to leave their home with a child of uncertain parentage to look for hospitality in another country, which isn't offered. You know, the, these are the sorts of stories that lots of people don't want to discuss nowadays because they're so, such powerful stories. They're existential stories. I mean, how many people like that have we heard of and seen in the international media? So, you know, at the pastor side of me would say, well, what's the difference between, you know, the, the, the young Palestinian woman who's being bombarded by missiles from both sides normally? I've got friends in Palestine. Yeah, and who's listening to that? All the endless migration. Surely we should be making, opening our arms. Yeah, do it sensibly. You don't have a million people settling in, you know, Titchfield in Fairburn out, yeah, outside Fairburn out, you know, all at once. But these things can be done sensibly. So we should be having a much more generous-hearted and open view. Personally, I think one of the reasons the establishment doesn't like Christianity when it's functional and not simply a, a, a mirror image of the establishment with due respect to the church of, I'll go to the second attack I'm having on the church of England. with due respect to the church of England that's the established church of Britain therefore of course it's an arm of government which most people forget you know it's not an accident you have bishops in the house of lords they are representatives of the government to the government for a particular type of ideological position um, and every church, Church of England church, of course, is actually a government building, which people tend to forget. You know, and I think we've got to disestablish all that. How can people, how can the Catholics and the Orthodox, not, not you know, weirdo misfits like me, let's talk about the mainstream big guns, you know, to have them treated somehow as second class representatives uh, of a religious, <coughs> excuse me, of a religious view is disgraceful and actually insulting. But I suspect the powers that be don't really want any ideology. And I personally think, of course, that religion is more than an ideology. But, you know, they don't want any type of ideology that stresses the humane, the human, uh, the tolerant, the caring. And the fact we just, you know, we've got to get off of our asses and do something about it in a world 
which is often painful and cruel and uncaring to the core. You know, the, the fact there might be a challenge to that, the fact that the Abrahamic religions, because it's the same religion in my view, this is where I get beaten today. You know, it starts uh, with the Jews, it passes through Christianity, it blesses everyone through Islam. We're all roughly saying the same thing. At the core of the core, there is something called love and wisdom and beauty and light. And that, I suspect, is why <clears throat> the modern world, or at least the rep so-called representatives of the modern world, are really doing their absolute best to sow discord between those branches of the same religion. And, you know, to ignore it on, on the level of government, I think that's that must be deliberate and it's very, very distressing. <clears throat> I like how you talk about like the separation of church and state and obviously the church shouldn't make the decisions like it did in the medieval and middle ages. But I do think that you look at politicians like Jacob Rees-Mogg who claims to be a Christian and then goes and votes against giving children the, like free school meals. And that's completely yeah. against <clears throat> Jesus's teaching. And like Jesus, I think a lot of, a lot of posh, upper class Christians do forget that Jesus was a radical who would have been completely against everything that this government stood for. He would have been on the streets protesting with Black Lives Matter. He would have been yeah. he would have supported obviously Marcus Rashford's campaigns for free yeah. school meals and things yeah. like that. And just before we finish, just to round up, I was wondering what do you think the role of the artist is in all of this? Do you think it's to to provide escapism from the horrors of the world that we live in? Do you think it's to be angry at what's going on in the world or do you think it's to promote love and promote unity? Look, it's all of it. Um, <clears throat> you know, if I, <clears throat> excuse me, if I've had a tiring week um, or I've been running around like a blue-ass proverbial, I don't want to go and see a great production of Shakespeare, you know. So I've got to struggle with all these thoughts and moral dilemmas. No, I want to go and see The Lion King. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, like a Busby Barkley thing. You know, I want 14 girls in sparkling, sparkly wigs tap dancing on stage. You know, I don't want to see, I don't want conundrums. <laughs> my, my trouble is, you know, there must be room for the highbrow stuff too. You know, so it's not, a, it's not an either or. I think they're meeting very different audiences at different times. Um, the role of the artist is paramount. Um, particularly painters, this country, uh, we have a great tradition of poets, you know, basically, you know, when, when I'm in Central Asia, when they think of prominent British people, the first na na name that ever comes up is Shakespeare. You know, but we've got Milton, we've got, oh, you know, this, this long history <clears throat> of people writing beautiful things and sometimes staging them. The forgotten element, of course, is in painting. Um, which I know slightly more about. I mean, my, my forthcoming book is actually on Andy Warhol. Um, who I'm, and everybody's wrong about him, so read it. They're all bloody wrong and I can prove it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, it got me thinking about recent British painters in a completely new way. And sometimes they're revolutionaries without really being seen as that because it's too innovative and too far ahead of time. I mean... I don't want to mention names in particular because the point stands, but if you're looking at well-known historical figures like William Blake, um, who of course was a practicing anarchist, some sort of mystical Christian, um, and his his woodcuts, his etchings, his drawings, I mean, they are still mind-blowing. I mean, there's the beauty, the intensity, 
He had a row with Turner um, in one of the galleries at one point. He walked up to Turner's paintings, and of course, how can anyone think that's not transcendental? You know, all studies in light, my God. Blake walked up to him and said, this is vision, to which the much more pragmatic Turner turned around and said, no, it's not, it's painting. You know, <laughs> um, no, that the artist, the British artist, must find the wherewithal to fight back and create and create and create and create and create. We need highbrow dramas. We need lowbrow comedies. We need sculptures of beauty. We need paintings that want to incite revolution. We need poetry giving a bigger picture to all of it. And the true calling of the arts finally needs to be realized in this country as a celebration of human creativity in every man, woman and child that lives here. That's really inspiring. And just thank you very much for coming on the show, David. The, I hope you. I, I hope you ask me back. I love this show. Um, it's been a great honour, believe me, a great honour. Um, you're doing a fine job, as I said. Uh, keep up the good work. And if you ever need a, a disgruntled, short, fat, but highly passionate <laughs> pastor, bear me in mind. I will do. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Artematics Life. I hope you really enjoyed my chat with David. It was it was a lot of fun, really. <laughs> yeah there's so much more like we could talk about like about his activism about the directing that he's done about like speaking with TEDx about Andy Warhol he brought up afterwards yeah there's so much I'd love to have him on again I just love people that you know that fill you with so much joy and like remind you how much good there is in the world I love that he uses his position as a pastor to like promote the arts as well I think that's really wonderful so that's all we've got time for for today's episode if you enjoyed listening to the podcast, then you can follow me on Instagram at Artimitates Life Podcast, or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Artimitates Life. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you again very soon, but until then, bye bye for now. <laughs>